Hey there, and welcome to the Element of Betrayal podcast. Grab a drink, settle into your favorite chair, and relax. Unless you're like me and you like to cook and clean while you listen. Either way, I hope you enjoy the show. Every like, share, and comment that you throw my way is like a high five from the internet gods, and it's like giving me a turbo boost to reach even more awesome people just like you. Thanks for being here, and let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Charlene, and today we're going to read two blogs. The first is Why Consent Matters and How Power Imbalances Are Abused, and the second is What is Obligation Sex? First, Why Consent Matters and How Power Imbalances Are Abused. This is from a post on Sheila Ray Gregoire's Facebook page, Bare Marriage. (laughs) That's a mouthful. She posted this on March 10th, and I had originally posted it to my Facebook, but I had been asked to take it down or I was no longer able to volunteer at my local church. I was never given a clear answer to why they needed it to be removed, just that Facebook wasn't the place to share these types of topics. The topic was that David had raped Bathsheba. I decided to share them here on the blog and expand a little more on why they are important to me. I feel like the word rape was too much for certain people. I had many women come to me and thank me for bringing attention to these types of conversations that often get ignored or downplayed. First, I'd like to acknowledge that not everyone has dealt with their physical abuse and it can cause a trigger when the subject is brought up. Second, I have dealt with my own abuse and still have triggers that pop up at the worst moments. Lastly, I want to bring these types of taboo subjects into the light so that other women are able to find healing and conquer their fears to be whole again. On the post, the question asked, was Bathsheba raped? We could word it differently. For instance, was she taken advantage of? Was she able to make a choice without any repercussions? Was she innocent in the actions that David forced on her? Let's look at the story a little closer. In 2 Samuel 11.1, it says that in the spring, when kings go out to battle, David didn't. He stayed behind. Verse 3 says that David sent and inquired about the woman. They told him that she was Uriah's wife. Verse 4 says that... Even though he had this knowledge, he still sent messengers for her and took her. She came before him and he lay with her. Bathsheba was following the ritual of cleansing after her menstruation. When David was out for a nightly walk on his roof, the rooftop of the king's was high enough that he would be able to see the entire city. The roof was used as an additional living space for those within the city. So it was just a place that they would put these kinds of things, baths, clothes, those kinds of things. There are many who claim that Bathsheba was out bathing to entice the king. The scripture says she was on the roof to purify herself after her menstruation. They didn't have indoor plumbing, so most rooftops had bathing areas. Add in the fact that David should have been gone for war, and it becomes a lot less likely that it had been planned act of enticement. Scripture goes on to say that he inquired about her and found her to be married and still had her brought back to the palace. He knew that Uriah would be off fighting the war. Now this word is sakab, to be lain with or simply to just lay on the ground. So it isn't a forceful word, but it's the same word used in Genesis 19.33 when Lot's daughters got their father drunk and they both became pregnant with him. Ew, I might add. Why did the fact that David was king matter? When you have a relationship with power differences as big as a king and just a regular girl in town, like Bathsheba, there's an issue of a power imbalance. Why does that impact her ability to consent? Well, as king, David had influence with how comfortable she would feel with saying no to sex, or anything for that matter. She would fear negative consequences for not consenting. 
Keep in mind, her husband, Uriah, was at war. She didn't even have her husband available to protect her. But even he may not have been able to stand against the king. I also edited to add Potiphar's wife and Joseph is a great gender-reversed example. If Joseph wasn't stronger than her, it would have ended differently. And I mean that to say she was forcing herself on him. And if he was, if these gender, if maybe she was stacked and Joseph wasn't, or if Joseph was the one attacking Potiphar's wife, I think the end result would have been much different there. Consent is never possible when someone feels they don't have a choice. I'll say that again. Consent is never possible when someone feels they don't have a choice. So was Bathsheba raped? That's been a major conversation on Twitter this week. This is Sheila, by the way, talking. I've had trouble understanding how people can simultaneously believe that Bathsheba wasn't raped and also believe, one, that she was innocent, two, David was guilty, three, she had no choice but to go when he sent for her. I think I've figured out the disconnect. I've had several conversations with people that agree the Bible deliberately paints Bathsheba as being a faithful, godly woman while painting David as looking for trouble. They agree that David is blamed for the encounter, while Bathsheba is only ever painted or presented as innocent. They even agree that she didn't consent. But then they also say, but it wasn't rape. For a long time, I couldn't figure out why they would say this. I thought if I could just get them to admit there couldn't have been consent, they'd concede it was rape, but they didn't. But then it dawned on me, they can't picture rape without also picturing physical force. To them, rape must involve physical force, and the Bible gives no clear evidence of physical force in this encounter. They say it couldn't have been rape. Why is it that people cling so tightly to physical force being necessary for rape to have occurred? Perhaps it's because if they admitted that lack of consent meant rape, it would illuminate coercive sexual dynamics in their own relationships. That's what they can't accept. Hello, future Charlene here. I just wanted to let you guys know I'm about to talk about two stories, one attempted rape, one rape. I don't go into much detail, but if this is a trigger for you, please go ahead and click forward now. My personal encounters with rape were very similar where there was no physical force. Um, I was 14 or 15. I can't really remember. It was summertime and I had a crush on this guy that had a motorcycle. I'm sure I'm not the only one. The problem was he was 22. And he had taken me to his house really fast because he said he needed to grab something. So we went to his house. He had shown me that if he just puts his hand over my head, the dog would get aggressive. Like that was their like sign or they had taught him to like attack if they did that, which was to me really weird that he was showing me that, right? Then we go into his house and he's looking and looking and looking. He's like, oh, I can't find it. Can I get you a drink? And I was like, sure. And he brings me some concoction drink or whatever. And I was like, I'm not drinking this. Because I had already lived in a lifestyle that I don't drink anything that wasn't freshly opened and I watched and, you know, that sort of thing. Just safety first. So I was dumping it in the beer cans that he had all over his room. And so he thought I'd, I'd drank it when he had come back from the bathroom. And then he started coming on to me and I was like, hey, we need to go. I need to be home. Like just trying to find like innocent uh, excuses to leave. Um, he wouldn't stop. And then in my head, I'm thinking, if I fight this, he might hurt me. I decided that I would try to just go along with it. That maybe if I just went along with it, he wouldn't hurt me. And so I did. I let him rape me. And for the longest time, I didn't call it rape because I was like, he didn't like hurt me. He wasn't holding me down. He wasn't like 
hurtful. He just wouldn't stop. And I kept saying no. Even the entire time, I'm like, please, just can we just stop? I really don't want to do this. I like you, but this is just a little too fast for me. Um, and he wouldn't stop. Um, so that was my excuse to not naming it rape, was that I had come with him. I'd gone into his house. I'd accepted a drink. Um, I didn't just say no and put my foot down and try to walk away. And a little bit of me was really scared that he'd have his dog attack me. Um, because then after I'm like, maybe he showed me that to like scare me and you know, you can't just leave because what are you going to do? You don't have a car. You're going to have to walk and I can send my dog after you. And he was very cocky and just, he was scary, but I was just attracted to him because he was really cute. But yeah, so that was my first encounter with rape. Um, the next time thankfully didn't end in rape. Um, I was at this house um, that I really didn't have like a choice on where to live. It was either this house or my aunt's house and their relationship was really rough. She was an alcoholic and he was very abusive. And so it was really hard to want to stay there. So I'm in the basement where my room is. I was able to get a lock, but it was a piece of plywood. So really there's, <laughs> it was just kind of like it's, uh, the thought of safety. So I remember I'd come home early from school and the guy that lived upstairs, he had a couple friends over, said hi, grabbed some lunch, went downstairs. I was just listening to music, writing in my journal. Um, at this time, I was 17 uh, or 18. I think it was right before I turned 18. So I just come up from California, living in this home. And they came down, knocked on the door. And so I got up and answered it because it was no big deal, right? And I was like, hey, what are you guys doing? They came in, they started talking. We were all sitting on the bed and then all of a sudden, both of them, there's two, um, both of them got on each side of me and like pushed me down to like laying down. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I am not in the mood to like fight right now. And then one of them started trying to take my pants off. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is not okay. So, um, I fought back and in the, I decided I wasn't just going to lay down and take it um, with like I did with the other guy. So I started fighting back. And thankfully, the guy that owned the house came home. And so I was able to they they heard him come home. They instantly stopped, got up, left, went upstairs. And I just sat there thinking, what am I doing? I can't stay here anymore. And I realized that I would rather go live with my aunt and my uncle, who I knew would never physically harm me. I mean, maybe my uncle would throw some punches, but like I can deal with that. I could not deal with this, the fear that they were finally, they'd always make comments about me and it was always sexual and stuff like that, but they were supposed to be more like brothers. And I could no longer be safe with the people that were supposed to protect me and that were supposed to have my back because that's the pact that we had all made living in that house. There was six of us that lived there full time. And then we had a bunch of people that came and went, but it was the six of us that were supposed to have each other's back no matter what. Well, they broke that two of them that lived there broke that and I could no longer live there. So I left and I never came back. There are a few things that happened when I was younger, but I can't really remember them as well. Not as clearly as these two times. And there's been many other times that boyfriends have pushed themselves too far on me. But these were the two times that really impacted me and made lasting negative effects on my life. After all of that, 
I say that to anyone that may not think that they had been hurt. Maybe their stories are similar. Maybe you have been outright, like, physically abused. It's not your fault. You didn't deserve that, and nothing you did made it happen. And I'm so sorry. The next one is what is obligation sex? So obligation sex, this is having sexual intercourse, even if it's unwanted because of a feeling of obligation to do so. How did obligation sex start and why the view should change? From my experience, counselors, church, and others who have given advice to me have done more damage than good. By telling me to be smaller, submit more, pray more, do more around the house, and give them unlimited sex, him being my husband. These changes were all geared towards me. I felt I was somehow responsible for my husband's affair and his porn addiction. If I wanted to be more Christ-like and become a better wife, then these were the areas I was lacking. If I changed, then my husband would be healed of his porn addiction. Not once was the responsibility of the sin on my husband. Sin loves the dark, and this method of counsel kept it hidden and thriving in the shadows. It wasn't until I met with someone who had walked in the fire and pointed me to Pure Desire Ministry that my husband and I saw hope. We found healing, grace, and the strength to stay together and defeat this stronghold. Now on to obligation sex. First, if someone makes you feel obligated or forced to do something that you don't want to, you may be experiencing coercion. Sexual coercion is the act of using pressure, alcohol, or drugs, or force to have sexual contact with someone against his or her will. And this includes persistent attempts to have sexual contact with someone who has already refused. Think of sexual coercion as a spectrum or a range. It can vary from someone verbally egging you on to someone actually forcing you to have contact with them. This can be verbal and emotional, in the form of statements that make you feel pressure, guilt, or shame. A marriage certificate is not a consent form. Wives are not obligated to give their husband sex whenever he wants it. That was never her obligation as a wife or as a woman of God. Men can learn to be more loving, show kindness, and respect for their wives, practice self-control, and to bear some fruit of the spirit. I will add that having sex all the time or seldom for a season isn't bad. But when it becomes required and expected, especially when the other partner isn't into it, this is when it steps into the realm of obligation sex. This isn't a weapon for women to use against their husbands. Intimacy is about trust and vulnerability, which has zero rooms for feelings of fear and loneliness. Keep in mind also, this can be a wife forcing a husband as well. Typically, men are the ones who have the higher libido, so they are typically the ones that are forcing and coercing. My wording is geared towards that teaching, so flip the husband-wife labels if needed. Sex can be enjoyed every day if both of you find intimacy and connection there. The Bible is very clear that we must both submit our bodies to each other in 1 Corinthians 7, 3-4, and that does not mean you are required to do it if you do not want to. Paul even says that this is a concession and not a command. There is a time and a place for everything, and a sex is among those. This is not to say that you get to say no forever. It is to protect those that are being taken advantage of and those that won't enjoy it otherwise. It's time we taught that sex is to be shared, intimate, and a deep knowing of one another. It isn't selfish, harsh, easily angered, and doesn't delight in evil. Just take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Where does forcing or making someone feel they have to engage in sex fits into that? 1 Corinthians 
13.4.3 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Harmful opinions have been taught so much that they have become facts. We must also be careful of the false information that has become Christian marriage facts without any grounding in reality or the Bible for that matter, such as the every 72 hours rule, that every man battles lust, or that women speak more than men. You have to be ready to push back on these things and look deeper to find the truth. When men are told that they need sex every 72 hours, they will think something's wrong with their wives if she doesn't put out or does so begrudgingly. On the other hand, a wife may feel that need to sleep with her husband every three days to not lose her husband to a porn or to another woman or become a bad wife. We are taught in some Christian marriage books that wives must have sex with their husbands to keep them from committing adultery. It's no wonder sex is a big issue when it comes to marriage. It's one of the most intimate ways to connect with each other. Unfortunately, it has been weaponized and used against women for the gain of men. When we are told during our periods after surgery or childbirth, we are to find ways to please our husband. We aren't told that our husband should respect us during these times if we are too tired and just need to recover. Your husband will not die without it. And honestly, some should go without it to learn just that. I could write an entire vlog on the damaging effects of telling young boys and men that every one of them struggle with lust. Where in the Bible does it teach us that women were made to be a distraction, a stumbling block, and something made just for pleasure? Nowhere. We are created equal and are to love, cherish, and respect each other. Making something so forbidden or off-limits to talk about gives it an unhealthy enticement. True intimacy is so important and it's so frustrating to see it used as a weapon in the church. Then scripture gets weaponized against a wife and used out of context to prove a point. We can do better. We should do better. Let's change it. What do we know now? When a spouse is having sex with their unwilling partner... It is not what God intended. It doesn't make them a better person and it doesn't or shouldn't fulfill the other spouse. The Bible gives us a clear view of Christ and the church and what true love looks like. He stands at the door and knocks. He's patient with her and kind. If your spouse is having a hard time engaging in intimacy, it's time to see what's causing that pain. My personal journey included a crazy mix of childhood trauma that I thought I had already conquered and sometimes we need professional help to weed out the hurts affecting our sex life. We must look back at what God intended. He talks about being one flesh and willingly submitting to each other. If we use the same metric to measure our marriage, where sex is a weapon, that would set off a lot of red flags, right? True healing comes when we stop believing the lies and start giving selflessly and lovingly. So what's your next step? Part of what I believe with this obligation sex message is we've told men that women are required, and the Bible says so, to give them sex whenever they want. That's not true. Marriage is two becoming one, and so then you're respecting each other. Now, this could mean that maybe the lower libido spouse is going to be more available, and the higher libido spouse is going to go without more often. And then you kind of have that happy compromise in the middle somewhere. And you're going to go through seasons where it changes. Our, our bodies change lifestyles change, kids come and go, health problems may arise, life just changes. Sometimes I wish that I could go back to when we didn't have kids and have been much more sexually active with my husband, but you don't get to do that. So being sure that you're making choices now 
that are good for your marriage. If you are in a healthy marriage, then this would be much easier for you. This task is super easy because your husband's going to listen to you and he probably already lets you say no. But if you are fearful of saying no in your marriage, then something's wrong. And it could just be simply that they were taught wrong. As you guys know, my husband was addicted to porn and had an affair with a woman at his work. And it was really difficult to want to have sex again. But now I really enjoy it. But that's because I've learned that sex is about me too. I get to enjoy it. I get to figure out what feels good to me. And I had to relearn what sex meant, what intimacy meant, what romance was. Growing up in the life that I had lived, a lot of the relationships were you just got together to have sex with each other. That's not what a relationship is about. So why is it that that's what the relationship is about when you're married. That is a bonus that you get, but so is sharing income and living under the same roof and going on one grocery trip instead of, you know, having two separate lives and, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, it's just one of the the perks of coming together. Um, and it's so awesome. Like, sex is awesome. And I never want my message to come across as if I hate sex because I don't. I enjoy it now. I used to hate it, yes. But as I started digging into what it really meant, what the Bible said, and um, with resources like Sheila's with The Great Sex Rescue, and She Deserves Better, and then Amy Bird's work on biblical womanhood and healing from that, I have come to find what feels good to me. And it's hard. I don't want my daughter, who is waking up right now, so I'm going to have to end this recording a little sooner than I thought. I don't want her ever growing up thinking that she has to do something that's so vulnerable and intimate. I want her to be confident and be married to someone that respects her choices. I don't want her to end up in the same situations I did. And if she does, I want her to be able to, uh, I want her to be able to make better choices. So to know, like the red flags were there for this guy. I should have known better. I hope that she will be able to learn the red flags that I can teach her. And red flags kind of stay the same. There'll be some nuances as, you know, behaviors and stuff change but a 22 year old trying to hook up with a 15 year old is a 14 15 year old is is always going to be wrong i I hope it's always wrong (laughs) that's just in our time not okay and i don't see it getting better anytime soon that's quite the age gap the comments that he was making towards me i hope that she sees that and is like nope i'm not hanging out with someone that's going to disrespect me like that you know like i didn't have that knowledge And I just wanted to be liked. So when he was making those comments, I felt good. And it was wrong, but I just didn't know any better. I hope that these two blogs that I read on this episode help you. And I'd love to get to know what you think about obligation sex, about coercion and stuff like that, and what you think, how we can do better, and what your story, what you think the story of David and Bathsheba really speaks about. I love going back and learning about these childhood, like if you grew up in church, you heard about David and Goliath, you've heard about David and Bathsheba, kind of. You've heard about the, uh, how did we learn about David and Bathsheba? We learned like, you don't covet your neighbor's stuff. <laughs> And then you get older and you're like, he murdered his wife to have sex with her <laughs> like, or murdered her husband to have sex with her. I don't know if I just said that. So everything changes when you go back and you you uh, look at those childhood stories that you learned as a kid about the Bible. But anyways, I thank you guys so much for being here. Be sure to follow the podcast, The Element of Betrayal, and you can find us on Facebook under the same name. I am really excited to have you guys here. Thank you for being a part of this journey with me and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.